Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host. My name is Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. If you're new here, welcome. I've been creating educational mental health content online for 10 years now. It's been a while, um, but I'm glad you're here. And if you don't know how this works, I answer roughly 10 questions from you listeners out there who have asked them in the community tab of my podcast YouTube channel. And the name of that channel is Opinions That Don't Matter. Or you can go on to my basic YouTube channel, like my regular one, that's uh, just my name, Katie Morton. And there's a playlist there for AKA. So you can watch them through that as well. Anyways, but you have to go over to the channel for to get that community tab to be able to ask your questions. And I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. And then the last two, I just randomly select. So without further ado, let's get into those questions. Now, question number one says, hey, Katie, why do therapists often like to sit and silently observe you for an uncomfortable amount of time? It happens when the conversation slows down and everything goes quiet and they just sit looking at you. What's the purpose of it? And there was a comment on this and says, and why is it so uncomfortable for me? Actually a bit frightening. I hate it when that happens that I feel so nervous. I feel so judged and I feel like everything I do is stupid and weird. <clears throat> I love this question. Now, as a therapist, we're taught to not work harder than our patients, meaning that I'm not going to try to ask you more questions if the one that I just asked is taking you a while to answer. I also don't want to rush you, right? You might be putting your thoughts together, trying to figure out how to answer. And also, I'm just trying to hold the space for you. A lot of people in the comments already kind of knew this answer. And holding the space really means that like, I've created an environment where you feel safe and okay to kind of dump all of your shit and just let it be there. And I'm I'm there to help you know that it's okay, that we can contain it. It's not too much. You you aren't overreacting, right? I'm there to validate and support. And so when we sit and silently observe, I'm just kind of letting something land with you. Now, I don't do this unless I've asked a question. It's not like I just sit in silence. I'll ask a question and then I give you ample time to answer. I've also let patients of mine who struggle to stay present dissociate a little bit and try it. Uh, to get them to bring themselves back, right? You've got to use your tools and what better way to try to do it than in a therapy session itself. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons that we can just allow the silence to happen, but we're not judging. I know it can feel like there's judgment because in other parts of our life, if someone was doing this, we they probably would be doing that. But in therapy, it's more about like, I'm giving you time to put your thoughts and words together. Nothing is worse than we're trying to explain something that's really hard or <clears throat> come up with language to describe how we felt to have someone rush us to an answer and 
guess the answer ahead of time. Do you know what I mean? Like we've all had conversations with those people that we, we're not friends with this person anymore, but we, uh, we used to have this friend and kind of like a casual acquaintance that when you would try to talk to her about something in the middle of it, she'd say, yeah, 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 yeah. Like she was pushing you along. Like you weren't talking quickly enough. It drove me nuts. And I'd always tell Sean, I was like, I can't even talk about anything without her like, yeah, 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 like rushing me through. It's, it was exhausting and, and felt really invalidating and like she didn't, she wasn't actually interested. And so in therapy, we don't want to give off any of those vibes. We want to make sure that you feel like you have time to put your thoughts together and also time to maybe use some of the tools. Uh, like I said, with the dissociation, I've allowed patients to do it and let them say to stay dissociated for a while um, because I want them to try to use those tools we've been practicing. Or if it's like social anxiety driven, I want them to try to work through it and figure out what language they want to put to it. I I don't know if there's like a, there's not a set amount of time that I'd let it hang, but it just depends on what we're working on. But that's why we do it. And also there is that component of not wanting to lead a patient, meaning I don't want to put language to what you're going through that's not your own. I don't want to assume that I know how you feel or what really happened. I don't want to uh, potentially falsify any memories of yours either. I want you to have the time that you need to try to piece it together. And I may break the silence by saying, do you want to move on to a different question? Was that one too hard? Or are we struggling to put words together for this, that? I might just try to let you guide me as to where you maybe need more help or support and move through it like that. Now, that's really the purpose is just to give you time and space to put your thoughts together and answer in a way that feels good or potentially use new tools. Now, the comment at the end of this that said, why is it so uncomfortable? It's uncomfortable because A, we're not usually given that kind of time and it's weird, right? Let's just call it what it is. It feels weird because in no other space in our life does someone just sit silently and give us time to answer. I can't think of any other example. No. Even like I was thinking like, oh, maybe in the service industry, you know, like if they're waiting for you to give them an answer on like whether you like the blue or the brown wallpaper or what what you want for dinner and you're trying to order, people will help you and they'll, they'll be like, I'll come back. You know what I mean? No one, no one just sits and gives you time. And so it feels weird. And then also, I think when things are silent, I think we could all maybe agree on this, when things are really quiet and there's not as many distractions, meaning not a ton of people are like asking questions, there's not noise, there's not something to think about, look at, make decisions about. We just have to be with ourselves. That's really uncomfortable. And also our self-judgmental mind just goes nuts. And so that's probably why you're feeling nervous and you're feeling judged and everything is stupid, right? You're, that self-deprecating conversation that you have with yourself each and every day is coming out loud and proud. And so I would let your therapist know that this is coming up for you. I will sometimes prompt that question too, and maybe your therapist has, but that's a good time to just tell them what you're telling me. Hey, I feel really uncomfortable when you're quiet. And after like 10 seconds, I start to judge myself and then think everything I'm doing is weird and stupid, right? And so letting them know could be helpful. But a lot of therapists will will also break the silence with like, hey, you you seem to be struggling here. What What's going on? You know, and then just let you tell them what's going on. But again, just depends on the therapist style and what we're working on and all of that. But you feel uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable. It's different. It's new. We're just trying to feel it out. But let them know. Okay. Cause all of that is helpful information and things that I would want to work on moving forward. Like if you were my patient, those are the things I'd be like, Ooh, that's interesting. Let's dig into that. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. 
This question says, hi, Katie, how can you tell apart when you're worrying has a legitimate reason versus when it's just caused by your anxiety or perfectionism? Hmm, Good question. For example, I'm always worrying I won't work hard enough for my university or that my boyfriend will leave me, that I'm not trying hard enough in therapy. But how can I know when a situation warrants actual concern or when I'm just catastrophizing and having too high of standards for myself and others? Hmm. Similarly, how to tell apart when we're not able to do something because we're so depressed and when we're just being lazy. Do you think a person can ever just be lazy or is there always a good reason for not wanting to do something and procrastinating? I'm always so hard on myself because while I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety, I just keep thinking that I'm just being lazy and using my diagnosis to justify my slacking off. Love you for all that you do. And thank thank you a ton for answering my previous question. Of course, of course, happy to do it. Um, Okay. Let me see. So first let's tackle, is it worry? And there's a legitimate reason. And when is it just anxiety or perfectionism? Here, well, okay, so anxiety is defined as uncontrollable worry, meaning that our worry just runs away on its own. Now, a basic worry would be something pretty simple. The way to, I'm trying to try to tease this out for you. You let me know if you need fault, like further information. But when we have a worry, let's say uh, Sean and I are moving, right? The back when we were getting ready. And I was like, oh, I'm worried we don't have enough boxes. Hmm. I could take some actions, right? I could do some things. I could check some facts that I have. I could be like, well, you know, when I calculated it and I have this X number of clothes, I thought I needed to have these. And actually they ship pretty quickly. They got here in two days. So if we just keep packing, when we run out, I can order more. And that worry goes away, right? It wasn't uncontrollable. It was based on something, right? I have a reason. I have a legitimate reason to be worried, but I can think it through. I can check my facts. I can look at options. I can consider my next move and then I'm fine anxiety doesn't work like that. Anxiety is an asshole. It wants to hang around. And it's like, I've been wanting to do a TikTok. I just haven't had the bandwidth and I'll get into that a little bit later, but I've been wanting to do a TikTok where you try to reason with anxiety. And then at the end, it's just like, but what if like that's anxiety? I can say all of these things. I can have all of these facts. I can say, you know, I could order more boxes. Um, they come really quickly. So if we're out and the movers are coming tomorrow, I can order them. It'll be okay. I can even pay me, pay, maybe pay for rush shipping. You know what? I could also drive over to Home Depot and pick up some more, right? I could run myself through all of these scenarios, consider how I could prepare, start packing earlier, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? I can do that. And anxiety will be like, but that's still not okay. It will come up with something else. It will still push me to worry. It might not be that exact, even that same worry. It might be like, but the packing tape, and then it will start spinning out, right? We all know that how our anxiety is like runs away with things. And then like, what if the movers come in? Like there aren't enough guys and like you guys can't move and then things don't work out. And then you don't, it'll just, it just like snowballs. That's how we know the difference. And I'm going to just throw this out here based on this particular person who sent in this particular question. All of the things that you mentioned sound like anxiety to me. I'm just throwing it out there. Okay because you're worrying you won't work hard enough for your university. That's like a a future worry. We have no, we have no evidence. Nothing's actually happening. It's like a, a useless worry. And I'm not saying that some worries aren't useless, but that sounds like an anxiety driven. We're like, we're worrying about something that we have no control over at the moment. There's nothing we can actually do. So just like what it's there just to mess with us. Sounds like anxiety. Then also that your boyfriend's going to leave you. 
Um, I'm curious if that's attachment-based or anxiety-based, but probably anxiety-based since this is your question. And that you're not trying hard enough in therapy. That's something we could easily bring up with our therapist and see what they think. But I think it's anxiety. Those all sound very anxiety driven. However, only you know, you know, if you have your facts and if you check them, checked in on them, and if they do run away with them and snowball, or if you can take some action and they go away, only you know that answer. But that is how I would tease that out. And then the similarly, the second portion of the question asking about being lazy or depressed. Now, I don't even like the term lazy. We can be procrastinating, meaning that it's hard for us to get started. And maybe we have uh, such we self-sabotage. So like getting started, we're like, I'm going to fail already. Ugh, why even get going? Right. There can be a lot of different reasons that we're being quote unquote lazy. Um, I think that people can just be tired and need a break. And there's doesn't have to be a good reason other than I'm tired and I need a break. And I'll talk about even my own process because people, people want to know how I'm doing. So I'll get into that later. But I really think that if we need a break and our body is telling us to take a break, we should take that break. Now here is when it becomes depression. The difference between being lazy, I'm not even like that term, but like taking a break and not feeling motivated and depression is have we been feeling this way, unmotivated? We don't enjoy most things. Do we feel just like a down mood? Do we feel, you know, quote unquote depressed? And has this been going on for most days for two weeks? Now, I know this is very diagnostically driven, but that's an easy way to just kind of tease out what's going on. I know personally, I will feel quote unquote lazy for a couple of days. And then I feel energized because I rested and I took breaks. I didn't do anything, right? Even just one day of like sleeping in and watching television all day. The next day I'm like, kind of got cabin fever. I want to get out of the house. Maybe that's just me, but that's how I am. And so that would be me just having some lazy days. It's not depression. I still enjoy things that I want to do. I still can feel happiness. I don't, I'm not bummed about staying at home or relaxing or not doing the thing that I feel like I probably should do. I'm not down about that. Does that make sense? I think it's kind of important to parse that out into because our brain wants to judge us all the time. And immediately when we don't do something that maybe we quote unquote should, then it will shit on us, right? We always talk about shooting on yourself. When we say we should have done something or we should be doing something, we're just ruining the moment. Because if we're too tired to do it and we feel like we need a break and our brain and body are telling us we need a break, do yourself a favor, and I'm speaking directly to myself at this point, give yourself permission to take that break. We all need breaks. We're not robots, right? And we can get overwhelmed. So th that's essentially how I would like tease out lazy versus depressed, even though I really just don't like that word lazy. And I think there's always a good reason to not want to do something or procrastinating. Maybe we don't have the energy. We're just not focused. There's this great book called, I think it's called The Artist's Way. I haven't ordered it yet. It's been on my mind. It's something that I've, I've, it's silly, but I've read it, read bits and done some of the homework through this woman that I follow on Instagram. Ashley Rodriguez is her name. She had shared her path and like what homework she's working on. I was like, Oh, I'm going to do this with her. This sounds amazing. But part of what we all need in order to continue being humans and creating things and working and being productive is we need to do nothing. We need to have time for that quiet, that stillness, the we, I don't know what it is with social media, maybe 
maybe it's just the the way our society is, but we like get so super stoked about productivity. And we think that that's like all there is to people in life. And I'm here to tell you that it's not. Sometimes we just need to be quiet. <sighs> Take some time, breathe, not be doing, doing, creating, creating, going, going, producing, producing. No, it's okay sometimes to, at the end of the day, not be able to say, oh, I got all this stuff checked off my list. It's okay to say the the thing I checked off my list was doing nothing. Sometimes that can be even more beneficial. And I'll speak personally that when I'm having like a total, I don't know, writer's block when it comes to creating videos, sometimes the best thing I can do is actually do nothing for a couple of days. And then I'm like, oh, even when I was writing my book, Traumatized, I'd have to take some breaks. Like I did not write at all on the weekends or do any research because I would be like, maxed. You know, my brain needed to like think differently, experience other things in order to like open it up to be able to continue doing that. So anyways, all that to say, it's okay to take breaks. Okay. The comment on this says, yes, how do you tell between decisions you want to make versus decisions depression wants you to make, such as breaking up with someone? I think we can always go back to, and someone left a comment about this, but we can always go back to the checking of our facts. Now, Thoughts are not facts. Repetitive thoughts are most definitely not facts. Check in with yourself and see where that's coming from. What do we really know? Okay, so we're talking about breaking up with someone. What are our reasons for that? Why do we think that we should? What is what is it that what's the evidence? What's the reasoning? Is it because we think we're such a shit person that then they shouldn't even have to deal with us? That's depression. You can tell that to bugger off, as the Brits would say. Um And so there's that. And then also going back to like the criteria, right? If it's depression, you know, we can, is it uh, because we don't enjoy the things we used to enjoy? Like check in on those symptoms. Are we not sleeping well, not eating well? Is that why we're just not feeling very good and we're feeling really impulsive? You know, what's going on? Check in with yourself first. I think too often when we struggle with mental illness and mental health issues as a whole, we can be really impulsive and be really numbed out from who we are, what we like, what we don't like, that we don't check in on ourselves and don't pay attention to the decisions that we're making. We just make them. Does that make sense? It's almost like knee-jerk reactions. We don't put a lot of thought behind them and a lot of care behind them. So if we're considering breaking up with someone, if we have good reasons and good facts, like I don't enjoy being with them and everything else seems fine. They, um, being with them has caused me to feel worse about myself. They're always putting me down or they lie a lot or they cheated or whatever it may be, whatever reason, um, that then you have your facts and you can end that relationship. But if the reasons are just like, I think I'm just such a shit person. I'm so boring to be with. I should leave them. That doesn't sound very, uh, healthy. That sounds very depressed, depressed based to me. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Okay. Now, another question on this says, and how do you differentiate between having anxiety or being hypervigilant due to your trauma? They can feel very much the same. And I'm going to be honest here. I don't think it really matters where it's coming from, but we'll get into that. Does hypervigilance mean that you're constantly on edge or can it be scarce on some days and worse on others or in in specific situations? Mm -hmm. Good question. I found myself being on edge and jumpy at every noise and scared when I was alone in the evening a few days ago, but I'm mostly okay during the day as long as I'm not visiting my parents at home. Is that more anxiety-based or hypervigilance? Okay, so hypervigilance is uh, can, can mean that you're constantly on edge. Everyone's going to experience it differently. Some people feel super hypervigilant all day, every day, 24-7. 
it's exhausting, by the way. And I'm sorry if any of you are struggling with it. Man, is it exhausting. So that can be happening, but it can also be gone some days and come back on others or in random situations or in very specific trauma-based situations. And here's why. Because of our level of resilience. Now, resilience is just our ability to weather life's storms, meaning that we can come into contact with triggers. And if we're super resilient that day, maybe we slept really well, ate really well, had a really good therapy session, we're feeling good. That trigger happens. We recognize it. We might feel a little, I hate that. And we move right on boop, because we have that extra padding, that extra resilience to get us through. However, on days where maybe we've just had a shitty time, right? Maybe we didn't sleep well. We, somebody woke us up super early and we got called into work or had to stay late or didn't eat lunch because we were working through it or whatever. Our, our, we are much more vulnerable to our emotions and our resilience is down. And so when we come in contact with something or possibly aren't even aware that there's even anything in our environment that's triggering us, but we have a flashback or a memory or something, right? It can feel like it comes out of nowhere and we can feel hypervigilant and on edge. And we're like looking around on our environment thinking, what the hell? There's nothing here to trigger me. That's because our resilience is just so low. Even the thought of the trauma or a smell or a taste or a memory we that just boop, a little flash is enough to set us off. Honestly, if we're working through trauma and therapy too, know that sometimes because we're doing that work, we don't even need triggers to cause us to to feel the PTSD symptoms of like hypervigilance. We can just be feeling that off and on because in essence, our brain is just trying to process through all that we've kind of dug out, if that makes sense. Okay. And then someone said, um, oh, sorry. And it didn't really answer this first portion where it says the difference between anxiety and being hypervigilant due to trauma. Anxiety is more uncontrollable worry. Whereas hypervigilance is that on edge, uh, things can just, it it startles us. Anxiety is different. Anxiety is more in our minds. Yes, we can have panic attacks that represent them, you know, and they're represented in our body very physically. And anxiety in social situations can lead us to being maybe, maybe a little bit jumpy, but we're off often more standoffish because it's like the thought of going over just sends us, you know, through the roof. It's too much. So I really think that they're different because hypervigilance is really on edge and anxiety is more like uncontrollable worry. So I hope that that helps. Okay. Now another one said follow up. How do you know, especially as an autistic who struggles with social cues, if you're being hypervigilance, hypervigilant due to complex PTSD, or if your gut is talking and telling you that you're actually not in a safe situation in the dating scene as a person with repeated relevant trauma due to not recognizing social red, social cue red flags are even there. Okay. That's a great question. And truly the best way to know is to work on these and talk through this with a, a therapist, very important. And also in addition to plus someone that you love and trust. Now, it could, there could be multiple people in that list. Could be like your best friend and I don't know, let's say like your mom or somebody, doesn't matter, two two friends, whatever. But having those people will help you identify red flags. I would I would encourage you to be careful about who you go out with. And if you're going to go on dates, I encourage you to do group dates first and have them pop by your apartment or hmm, maybe not cuz I don't want them to know where you live maybe when you're going to meet them, have a friend there with you. And when you're setting it up, say like, hey, well, I'm hanging out with my roommate until that time. So uh, we'll be here and you can meet up with me there. And then we'll go to the movie from from that you know coffee shop or whatever and have your friend meet them. Now, I know this sounds kind of silly and you're like, Katie, you're being really weird. 
But I'm here to tell you that when we first start a relationship with someone, especially if we like them, we can miss all those red flags. And not to mention if we're autistic and we struggle with social cues, right? We want someone on our side who doesn't have the same struggles that we do, who can help point those out. And talking with a therapist is really been the most beneficial, especially when we're healing from trauma. And they can help us kind of tease that out little by little. And it's important for you to pay attention to that person to some of the social cues that that you like you notice but you're not sure if you're overreacting like when you're done with those dates jot some stuff down the thing about autistic people and I just want to throw that out there is I know sometimes it can feel like we're missing a lot of things but I have to be honest from what I know about the autistic community and from people I've talked to who are autistic you are so focused and so you notice way more than I often think you give yourself credit for. And so just taking some notes after one of those hangouts, like a little date or get together, talk with your therapist about it and talk with those trusted people. Let them know, you know, some of the things are coming up for you and and allow them to ask you follow-up questions like, well, did they, did they make any advances like that? Or like, you know, did you didn't let them know where you lived? So technically they couldn't have been asking, you know, let them parse that out with you. They might be able to either, you know, uh, second your worry and your red flag or tell you that maybe that's just an overreaction, but slow and steady when it comes to relationships, letting people in our lives, meet them, trusting their judgment on them until we can trust our own, because we have to slowly build up that confidence and trauma remove it, like robs us of our confidence, makes us think we can't trust our gut and makes us think the bad things are always going to happen. And we just don't want to give into that over and over again. We want to We've got to push back. We got to prove it's going to be okay, but also safety first. When we're meeting up on dates, don't let them pick you up. I know old fashioned ways are like, they pick you up at your house. Uh-uh-uh. I don't want them to know where you live. I want you to meet them in a public place where it's for the first couple times in the daytime, if you can, like a coffee date or want to go walking around this area of town, always stay in populated areas, always stay around other people and always have an out like, oh, and I'm meeting my friend at four. So I can meet you at two. And then I I have to go, um, you know, leave and see her. So you have that, that, you know, bookend, um, and let someone always know where you are. Where are you meeting? How long are you staying? Are you going to walk around? Where are you going to walk? And then you just make sure you follow that path. You let them know where you are, turn on your locations on your phone, whatever you can do to keep you safe. Now, I know you're probably like, Katie, you're being overprotective mom, but I'm just here to tell you that, you know, if we're worried about people and we aren't sure we can trust our gut, we want to have these backup things set up so that we're safe and we're okay. And it takes time, but through healing, we will be able to not feel so on edge in every social interaction or every potential new relationship. So hang in there. Okay, let's move on to question number three. And it says, Hey, Katie, I hope you are well. I am. Thanks for uh, not thanks for asking, but I hope you're well too. I was wondering, do you have any tips to keep your brain from freezing up or going blank when talking about trauma? Sounds like dissociation. I recently started having what I think are recovered memories of sexual abuse, but I don't know for sure if they're real, but I'm worried my brain could just be inventing them for some reason. It's causing a lot of distress in my life, not only because I don't know whether to believe myself and I feel like I must be a horrible person if I'm making this up, but I also keep getting these waves of emotion where I feel the way I do when I get that random flash of, you know, memory throughout the day and it's sort of confusing. I am desperate for help, but can't figure out how to bring it up in therapy. Every time I think of talking about it, my brain just freezes. And the thought of writing it down 
Instead of saying it makes me feel like I'm a coward or that I'm being a baby. You are neither of those things. It's hard because I feel guilty for lying to my therapist about it and terrified that I could be making it all up. Is there anything I can do to help my brain, quote unquote, unfreeze so that I can talk about it with her? Also, thank you for all the work you do. I always look forward to your videos on Thursdays. They've helped me so much. Oh, I'm so glad. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. So let's just start at the top. Now, to keep our brain from freezing in general, even if we're in session, there are tons of tools called grounding techniques because what freeze really is, is part of the dissociation spectrum. We feel like we can't talk about something. It can feel like we're watching ourselves from third person, like removal from self, depersonalization or derealization, like we're removed from our environment. It can feel like we're like watching ourselves in a movie or something, right? We can feel removed in tons of different layers and everyone will describe it differently. But that's what the free state is. And that's why you're not able to talk about it is essentially your brain is overwhelmed with the idea and it pulls the ripcord. It's like, ah, and you, you are left like unfocused, unable to pull words to describe what's happening. And you just feel kind of spaced out sometimes. So that would, I would assume is what's happening and grounding techniques are what help. Now, those, those can be things like strong sense changing the temperature. Um, a lot of viewers over the years have told me how when they get overwhelmed and dissociate, they get overheated. And so having like a cold, something you can put on your neck, like whether it's a cold pack or uh, maybe even just bring ice in a Ziploc and you put it on your neck. Or maybe if we get cold, when we freeze, <laughs> that would you know just pun, such a good play on words. Maybe we you know bring a blanket with us to therapy or if your therapist has a blanket, maybe we throw that on ourselves. You know, maybe those are some things that we do to help keep ourselves there. Uh, peppermint scents, bergamot scents, uh, even orange oils work for many of my patients. They're also like thinking putties and things to keep our hands moving that can help keep us grounded sometimes or counting colors, like looking around the room, how many things are blue, red, brown, whatever, or going through the alphabet where you're like, what's something in the room that starts with A? What's something in the room that starts with B? You get the gist. I talk about a lot of these in my uh, YouTube videos. You can just search Katie Morton grounding techniques. They will come up, but that will help you stop freezing. And another huge component of this is just recognizing when it's starting to happen, if we're able, because the sooner we recognize it, the sooner we can enact some of those tools that we're, I was just describing. And the more quickly and easily we can like get ourselves back and keep our, keep us from freezing up. Okay. But I want to dig into the other portions of this because writing things down and bringing them into therapy doesn't make you a coward. It doesn't make you a baby. It's very normal. I can't tell you how many times and how many videos I've offered that as an option and how many of my patients have utilized that option. I've had patients bring in like their journals from the last years and they'll flag some of the pages they want me to read and I read them. That's just how this is. It's hard to talk about things. It's hard to say stuff out loud. We can feel overwhelmed from the get. So you're not being a baby. You're not a coward. And it's important for you to talk about these flashes of memory as they come up so we can start kind of, first of all, journaling about them as they come up or putting them onto a timeline. Uh, an amazing member of our community left a comment below talking about how she has done this in her work. And I think sometimes if we're trying to make sense of something, it can help to kind of put it in somewhat of a timeline, we're like, oh, this is flash of memory. I think I'm like eight years old. Okay, well, let's just pop that in there. We can always move things. We can always change things. 
even as you're journaling about this and writing these things down, they can be movable. That's what's great about, you know, like doing it online is you can just like copy and paste and move text to fit like, oh, this happened first and then this happened. Okay, let's rearrange this. It's easier to move it around. But either way, start jotting it down. It's very normal for it to be confusing and overwhelming and putting it on paper is so much easier and just, it's a visual, it's an easier visual cue too. And I'm going to be honest, even my patients who can talk about it easily and say it out loud, I also have them write it out because that gives us uh, a thing to refer back to. I always have them put it on a trauma timeline if they're able, and that can help. It's Those are all helpful tools and really important. So don't think that it makes you a baby or a coward. It's actually part of treatment and part of the way that we can get out all that we may be thinking and feeling and going through. Now, don't worry about lying to your therapist. We get lied to every day. We're not going to be offended. Everybody says nothing happened and then maybe later recalls it or never knew. And then they remembered, right? So don't, don't worry about that. Um, I know that sounds silly to say like, I get lied to every day, but I get, I mean, if there was a day I was in my office where I didn't get lied to, I I'm not aware of it. I feel like it happens all the time. And I, I wasn't offended. I just always want to know why. And I try to help them understand that, you know, if they're lying on purpose, that it only hurts them and hinders their progress and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's no need. You can bring it up. It's fine. We're used to it. Now, writing it down and bringing it in, I think is great. If she'll allow you to email, I think that's wonderful. I'm trying to see if there's another, I feel like there's one more question, but I guess, I guess that's it. Yeah. Writing it down. Okay. I think I've covered it all, but that's trauma's hard and our brain wants to it wants to pull us away. It wants to shut us down because that helps us feel safe, right? That keeps us going, but it's now hindering us and holding us back. And so we have to push forward. And some of the ways we can do that is through writing it down and bringing it up with our therapist and uh, having them read it. Or if we're able, sometimes trying to read our stuff out loud in session, if you can't, you can just hand it off to them. All of those are great, great options. Okay. And, oh, and I think there was something in here, or maybe it's in one of the questions afterward, but either way, the, the worry about repressed memories coming back and thinking that maybe we made them up and that they aren't real. So much research proves that we can trust repressed memories because first of all, they did, it was in the body keeps a score. And I was trying to remember the name of the researcher, but I'm not going to be able to recall it, but it's actually in my book traumatized. I have an entire chapter on repressed memories. I think it's chapter seven or eight, but we're not, there's no reason we wouldn't benefit from creating any of those fake memories. And also why would we traumatize ourselves with them as we reveal them little by little in these flashes that are horrible that we hate? Like, let's just think logically about this for a minute, because that doesn't make any sense, right? Because we wouldn't do that because it feels shitty. Why would we want to feel shitty? We don't want to feel shitty. We wouldn't do it. And they, the study that they did, so just, and it's, this is just pulling from my memory as, as best as I can, but they had people who they interviewed, they were children. Unfortunately, there was a group of children of women who had been abused and they knew it. And they interviewed them to try to file rep- police reports and all this stuff. And then they followed up with the women later. And some of them recalled almost exactly the same type of memory. Some of them didn't recall it at all. And when they checked in later, they were able to recall. Anyway, they did a bunch, they followed up with these people. I forget for how many years. Anyways, what they came to find out is that when are we are able to pull up more memories, because some people remembered more things than they did when they were younger. 
and you know, in the moment, because sometimes when things have just happened, we're already like shutting it down. Long story short, you can trust repressed memories. There's no reason for us to make it up. There's no reason for this to happen. It's happening out of your control. So tell me where you would be able to create this and control this. And also the science, the studies, they back it up that you can trust repressed memories. Okay. Now there was an add on that says, what should I do if I write down thoughts for my therapist to read? Um, but it's too hard to verbalize some things. You don't have to read them out loud. It's okay to have your therapist uh, read them on their own. I've done that for many patients. It says, however, my therapist refused to read it in session. She says, I have to read it to her out loud. It seems so mean. Talk to her. I understand um, challenging you. I've challenged some of my patients who have gotten away. And I don't mean gotten away like, oh, you've gotten away with this. Like you're getting away with something. It's more like they've had me reading it for a while. And I want them to try to put some language to it themselves because I think it'll be healing and I'll challenge them to read as much as they can. And we'll try that. That might be what she's doing, but, but give her an opportunity to explain it and also give yourself an opportunity to advocate and let her know that, Hey, I can't do this right now, but I'm willing to try as we, you know, work more and and move forward. I'd like to be able to, but I can't right now. We have to put that out there a little bit. I know it's hard. I know we want to shut down. I know we're like, absolutely not. So let your therapist know because I can't, I just won't believe that they're really being mean and like, won't work with you. Just let them know where you're at. Be like, I'm not there. I'm not at that point yet. Can I do as much as I can? And, or can you read it for now? And then we'll try, you know, we have to, we have to advocate, we have to speak up and let them know where we're at. They can't read our minds. So let's give them another chance because I don't really, I don't love that, but I have to believe that there's a real reason. And so let's talk to them about it. Now, there was another comment on this that I have the same question as part of yours. How do you know if your memories are real or if your brain is making them up? Most of the time I can tell, but sometimes I'm not sure. I'm telling you guys that whole chapter of my book is all about trauma memories and why they're so difficult to recall, why we can trust repressed memories. I'm here to tell you, uh, even that book, The Body Keeps the Score, that where they talk about why we can trust them and all of the different studies that have been conducted, they they are trustworthy. Now, I do want to throw out there that they might be a little mixed up, meaning we might think something happened before something else, and that's not actually the order that it took place in. And we might think that, uh, I don't know, like this person was that much older than us or younger than us. I, I've heard from a lot of my patients, they'll think the person who harmed them was much larger than they really were, which I know sounds weird, but it's just because we were scared. And so there can be some like mix-ups that way, but we aren't making up full memories or fabricating them. I know the shame spiral and the guilt and embarrassment, and all of the things that come along with trauma tell you that you're just making it up, or maybe you've had assholes in your life tell you like it didn't happen, or that's not that big of a deal or downplay it whatever you've been through, I'm sorry, but I'm here to tell you that you can trust your repressed memories. Just start allowing them to come up as they come up, no judgments, and let's take notes on them. Let's write them down, write down what's coming up for you, and then talk about it in therapy. And then we can slowly but surely piece it together. Now I'm here to tell you that a therapist should not like plant memories. Most therapists, I mean, we only had that one scenario. It was like back in like, I don't know, the eighties or nineties, but they won't lead you into something. They'll just ask you to let them know what's happening and ask you for more detail and maybe ask other questions around it to try to get you to remember more. But no one's making them up. No one's planting them. You know, 
no one wants to have flashbacks and feel hypervigilant and struggle with PTSD. Just trust me when I tell you that you can trust your memories as they come back. Your brain does not benefit at all by making them up. And I cannot think of any logical or scientific reason why it would do that. Now, um, somebody said also, is it possible to have a trauma memory that actually doesn't really feel like it happened, but instead as if it was a recollection of a fantasy scenario that I made up as a kid? Of course, of course, 100%. This is kind of part of dissociation um, as well as just uh, an adaptive thing that we can do as a child to try to manage the trauma and continue, meaning survive and move forward. We can put it into like a fantasy scenario. We can pretend that the, the person who harmed us is like the evil person in our favorite cartoon or something. And we are the good guy on that cartoon and we've been hurt or in our video games. I've had a lot of patients who have utilized different characters like that. And that's the way they kind of remember things. And so it's very normal for that to, for us to have a recollection like that. And it also could be connected to dissociation as well, but it could also just be a way to kind of make sense of it in a, in a very childlike fashion. It's just what we did. It's the way we tried to process it. So give your, you know, your brain a little pat on the, the back. It was doing the best it could and make sure you talk about it in therapy and try to figure out, you know, what's really coming up for you. Maybe we can start putting that timeline together or start piecing together some of these fantasy scenarios. And if there's any correlation with our real life and how can we draw that correlation and, and giving yourself an opportunity to just kind of be curious about it. And then there was a final question on this said, yes. And to add to this, I told my therapist that I feel like I may have experienced a trauma. And now I'm worried that when I tell her it won't be as bad as she is building it up in her head to be. She's not building it up. Trust me. Why am I so concerned that my trauma is not big enough for my therapist? Because trauma is filled with shame. And shame, if you don't know, is the belief that we, we are so unlovable, unworthy. Something's wrong with us. We're like broken, like something deep inside of us is inherently wrong. And so we think that everything that comes out of our mouth or everything that we want to create or do is just bad and not good enough. And oftentimes when it comes to traumas, we we talk ourselves down, right? During it, we're like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not as scary. Or our abuser or someone we even reached out to for support could have told us, oh, you're making this into a bigger deal than it is. You were just playing. It's just a joke. They can try to minimize because of their own discomfort. We can do it to ourselves. Other people can do it to us. And that's why we always think that. But I'm here to tell you, your therapist isn't building it up. They are not, they don't have any expectations about it. They're just waiting for you to be ready because that's really the therapist's role. We're not judging. What good would it do for me to try to build it up into a big thing? Why would I do that? I wouldn't want to wish that or even think about that for anybody. I want to make sure that you have, you feel safe, that you feel held, you feel heard and understood and okay to talk about it. And that's, I would just be waiting until you felt ready to do that. So that's what your therapist is doing. Okay. Now, question number four says, hi, Katie, how do you handle it when a patient gives you a doorknob disclosure? Is it common? Do most therapists find it annoying? Is there a reason some patients do this? Now, for those of you who don't know, a doorknob disclosure is something that a patient will do right at the end of session. I'm talking like five minutes left. Sometimes they call it doorknob disclosure. Sometimes they can say it right as they leave. So they've already paid. We've already wrapped things up and they'll put their hand on the doorknob and turn to me sitting in my chair and they'll say, oh yeah, and by the way, you know, my dad was physically abusive to me for like, I don't know, 10 years, but we'll talk about that next time. Bye. And they want to leave. Boom. 
Those are super, super common. So common that we learn about them in school and we're taught how to manage them. Now, the best way to manage them is to take notes and say, thank you for bringing that up. We will talk about that at next session. And the reason people do it is because it's hard to talk about. And sometimes you just want to dump and run, right? It, and it can be, it's funny because it's happened and it's happened a ton of times to me. And it usually happens after I've been seeing someone for a little while, maybe six months, seven months. And they, it's like, we're not progressing in the way I think that they're wanting. And I can't really figure out what it is. And we're trying to dig in deeper and I'm checking on their goals and like, I'm like, what is holding us up? And then boom, they drop something that a doorknob confession. And I'm like, oh, that's why we've been hung up is because that was what was getting in the way. Now, not always, but there, it's always something that they think is like this big bomb that's being dropped, but it's really just something that's uncomfortable for them to talk about. And so it's easier just to drop it and run. And then you have a whole week to kind of essentially from what my patients have told me, freak out because you know, you're going to talk about it when you come in the next week, but we don't find it annoying. It's all helpful. Whatever you got to do, man, it's your process. I'm just here to assist as much as I can. I, I find it interesting. Um, I haven't had now, I don't know why I haven't had a patient do it more than once. I don't know if there's any research about this. I'd be really interested to read, but I've only had a patient, each patient, I mean, doing it once. So it's like, once they know now it's like a safer place, maybe they've come around to it. I don't know. Interesting, but that's just, Hey, random information, not annoying at all. It's your process. Um, is there a reason? Yes. Cause it's uncomfortable and it gives us a way to drop and run. And then we don't have to dig into it right then and there. It's really, it's kind of interesting. Cause I feel like it's, it's our brains. It's our way of like fighting back against our brain's urge to stuff things down so we can continue to survive. It's our way of being like, I don't like this. And I want to talk about this. So I'm going to put it out there. So I'm forced to, so you're holding me accountable. I just don't want to do it right now. And that's okay. It's just really common. And then there was a comment that said, Hey, Katie, as a similar add on, how do you react when in between sessions, a client drops a few big things in the email that they want to talk about? I don't react at all. I do not respond to emails. I talk very clearly with my patients about their expectations in between sessions. So if you sent an email with a bunch of a few big things you want to talk about in the next session, I'd print out that email and bring it in a session. I'd read it. I'd read it with you. I'd say, so you email me about X, Y, and Z. And here's what you said. Blah, 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 blah. Let's get into it. So I would bring it in and read it there. I do not respond um, via email. The only reasons I ever respond via text, voicemail, or email is when it comes to an emergency or a scheduling change. And that's just because boundaries. I got to live my life. I can't be, you know, beholden, checking my email all the time, worried that, you know, something's going to come through. I always tell my patients if they're in an emergency situation, they need to call me and leave a message right away. So I just, you know, that's, that's really it. So I don't really react. I just wait till I see you next. And then I make sure I bring it up. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie. My question is, how are you? A few weeks or months ago, you told us that you were taking a much deserved break due to stress. I just wanted to check in with you and ask if there, if you were starting to feel better. I really appreciate that content. It was really helpful for me. And I'm sure for lots of other people who look up to you through the lens of your content to see that you struggle the same struggles a lot of us struggle with. This question is also a reminder to take your time whenever you need it. Yeah. Um, just to be completely honest, I'm feeling pretty burnt at the moment. And uh, I don't know if these like are videos that you guys want me to make. It feels very self-serving. I don't know. I always like have a little discomfort with it, but I will be honest here. 
I think with the book coming out and all of the content that I created around the book and then continuing to create videos and moving. And I mean, I talked about this in the video and like the pandemic and just life right now, right? feels like a goddamn dumpster fire. I've just feeling overwhelmed. And I was just talking to Sean about it today, how I was like, I really want to take a break here around my birthday. So mid to late October, my birthday's on the 13th. And my mom is coming into town um, with Larry. And I was like, I need to take, I need to like take real time off because the problem with what I do is that even when I'm not creating or not really working, I'm like working lightly where I'm like posting things and captioning things and like talking to all of you. And I don't want, I don't like to like completely disconnect, but I think for my own mental health, I need to just take that break. And so yeah, I'm just figuring out how to do that. And then how often it needs to happen for me. Like I mentioned in, a, in one of the journal prompts, if you guys don't know, over on my Katie Morton channel, I offer journal prompts on Tuesdays and Fridays, how I, I am like, I was struggling with balance. I'm still struggling with grading balance. Um, and I'm just trying to figure out how it works and, and how, how to, you know, how often I need to take breaks? What does this look like? How much work should I be doing? How late should I be working? How early should I, you know, like trying to figure it out because right now it just feels a little bit much and I, I have to reevaluate. And I feel like I'm always doing that. Anybody else? I feel like it's like, I think I can do this. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm starting to get real worn out. Um, also, as much as we love our puppy, having to get up with her and having something that depends on me is like an extra layer of stress. Cause even good things come with stress. Right. And so anyways, I am doing okay, but I'm still trying to figure out how to, how to manage. Yeah. But thanks for asking. Okay. Let's move on to question number six. And that question says, Hey Katie, how do you know when you're quote unquote drowning in the symptoms enough to warrant medication? Or does your situation play that big of a role? For me personally, I'm just on antidepressants, which according to my doctor isn't specifically aimed at curbing my anxiety symptoms. So I still experience anxiety and panic attacks, but they are way less frequent. I have skills to aid me, which work, but it can take me a few days to find my feet again. I experience symptoms of PTSD, which causes me to dissociate, and I feel like I'm making minimal progress in, in my sessions. To top it all off, still in lockdown. Oh, I know. you. Those of you in Australia, I'm so sorry. We get going a whole tangent about that. Ideally, I'd like to not use any more medication, but I don't know how bad it needs to be before I really need to reconsider. There's also a likelihood that I'm just being impatient with myself for not processing trauma faster. I'm also terrified of weight gain as a side effect if I add more meds. As someone who doesn't prescribe meds, when do you decide it's time to have the talk with your patients? You are so helpful and encouraging, especially grateful for your more recent videos. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And sending lockdown love from Australia. Okay. So this is a great question. It sounds like you're drowning in the symptoms. Now, the reason that I say that and how to know is, is what you, is pretty much you like check the boxes. So, Okay, we still have symptoms that are bothersome that are potentially, it sounds very much impairing your ability to do what you want to do, meaning that you, you know, you can take you a few days to find your feet again after the symptoms have come and made themselves present. You're having symptoms of PTSD, which an antidepressant can assist somewhat from, from what I know, but not fully, right? And then you dissociate and then you're making minimal progress um, in your sessions. And so, and lockdown's still happening because I do want to throw something out here, you guys. The pandemic, I know, I don't know. I mean, I know, I shouldn't say I know, but 
I'll speak personally. I'm sick of hearing about it. I'm sick of dealing with it. I'm sick of talking about it. I'm sick of masks. I'm sick of not masks. I'm sick of vax. I'm sick of not, sick of not vax. I'm just sick of it. I want to throw it all out the window. I want to pretend it didn't happen. La, la, la. I don't know what it is. It's made everything just very weird. I feel like time is simultaneously moving fast and slow. I feel frustrated. I think we're seeing that play out with people, right? It's like, I don't know. I'm just angry at it. I hate it and I'm mad and I'm sad and I'm frustrated, right? And so I'm saying that, I mean, because I've, I've hopefully you guys are like, yeah, yeah, I'm sick of it all too. Maybe not, but I'm sick of it. And that stress of what's happening for all of us, every person on this planet is a big weight. And I, I think we'd be hard pressed to find someone who hasn't been negatively impacted by it. I know some people were like, oh, it's been an okay year for me. I know, but the weight of the grief and the stress and the anxiety of everything going on. And now there's, you know, there's also things going on in our world, right? We've had hurricanes and major flooding and all sorts of crazy things going on. So we've had like regular every year, couple year kind of situations. And then we also still have this pandemic. And so that weight, I honestly believe has been hard on all of us. And so I don't want to discredit that. I don't want to pretend that that doesn't uh, give enough weight like PTSD, like a PTSD diagnosis or like a depression or anxiety diagnosis, because I honestly think it does. And I've had a lot of my patients back before Sean and I moved when I still had my practice during like in 2020, who their symptoms just got worse. And I think we'd all agree that even if we didn't need um, therapy or we're on a low dose of medication. Maybe we need an increase or maybe we need, we need therapy or need more, right? It's been really trying. And uh, every therapist out there, I think they can attest to this, that it got real busy for us real quick. And everybody wanted to see someone and, and which is wonderful. People are reaching out for resources, but then who's helping us and we need to get support too. And so anyways, I don't want to get too much in the weeds on this. I'm just saying that to say that you're still under lockdown and you guys have barely been out like what a few weeks and then back in and then a week and then back. You've almost been complete lockdown for like an entire year. So I believe that you could find some more, I don't even know what the word is. I guess just, just a little lightness in your life, a little, a little breathing room through a potential either additional or different medication. And when we find our symptoms get in the way for of us living our lives and in the way of us being able to participate in therapy and feel like we're making progress, that's when we're drowning in it. And I know I went off the rails a little bit there, but I just really want to, I want you all to know that like what we're going through isn't small. It's not nothing. We don't need to minimize or invalidate. It's shitty and it's hard and it keeps going on. And it's like, I don't even know. I'm just frustrated by it. And I'm sure all of you are frustrated by it too. So I want you to know that that, that honestly, in my mind, just being in the pandemic is enough to warrant potential therapy and medication or both. Okay. Now, when I, um, the last little part of the questions is when do you decide it's time to have the talk with my patients? So if, if my patients are plateauing, or halting, maybe even sliding back into, let's say there's still, you know, their self-injury urges have come back full force or their eating disorder. They've had a few slip ups and they've told me about it, or, you know, they've been struggling to get out of bed a little bit. They're feeling a little bit more depressed. And I just find that they're not that partic- like they're not participating that much in therapy and the homework's not getting done. And, and they're talking about how things are, they're struggling. You know, that's when I have the talk. I am 
I'm not quick to refer, but I don't waste time because it takes so long sometimes. I mean, not so long, but three to six weeks can feel like fucking forever, right? And so I don't want my patients to not be assessed by a psychiatrist and to decide if that's a choice or something that could benefit them. I want them to have that at the ready so that, you know, we're not waiting till we're feeling terrible, terrible, terrible before we reach out and get support. And so if my patients are struggling, I feel like we're not making progress. There's not like an identifiable short-term trigger. Like um, let's like, for instance, like Sean and I moving, that's an identifiable short-term upset, right? It's an adjustment disorder potentially like, right. It's an adjustment. It's going to be hard. It's stressful, but it will go away. If this is something that I think has like legs to stand and it can uh, sustain for a long period of time, I want to get my patients in as soon as possible if they're open to it to let them know, let the psychiatrist know what they're struggling with, let them know what their symptoms are, let them know of their concerns. Like the weight gain is a real concern. We need to ask about all the side effects and know what to look for and notice. And a a psychiatrist should weigh you before they put you on something. You know, we should keep track of that stuff. Um, With If you have an eating disorder background, things can be a little bit different, but they still keep track of that stuff. You just won't know the weight. They'll blind weigh you, which means you just turn backwards on the scale or we have the scales with the separate reader. Um, but anyways, all that to say that I have the talk early on just so that we know, so that I gauge if they're interested, if they're open to it, maybe see if we can get them in for an appointment so that it's it's available to them because I don't want you to be complete. Like I know I say drowning in the symptoms. I don't want you to be drowning. If you're like struggling to tread the water, I want to get somebody on board quickly. And so that's really why. And that's how, that's when I decide to have the talk is if we're just struggling to function and there's no end in sight. And even if it is a short-term stressor, if if that is just throwing us for a loop, then I, I could, would consider having the talk as well. Cause I don't want anybody to have suicidal thoughts or anything like that. You know, we don't want to make it last any longer than it needs to. Okay. Now there's a comment on this and I shortened this comment a little bit so that it's not triggering to anyone out there. Just FYI. And they said, and what if you're drowning in your symptoms, but don't really trust yourself around pills? The last time my suicidal thoughts were starting to manifest in a more tangible way, I instantly committed myself to a hospital. So I know a part of me still looks out for myself, even in my darkest hours. That's wonderful. But that that time was different as I was in a very depressed state. And now it's more like my trauma and depressive symptoms are coming and going. Excuse me. I don't want to lose control of myself hospitalizing myself is not an option now as my new roomies are moving in soon. And I'm fine with them knowing about some of my issues, but they don't need to know from day one that I'm unstable. Also, college is starting again soon and I want to fully attend university for real. I have trouble make, uh, talking to my therapist about my trauma on a video call, which is the only option when I'm away from college rather than being in her office and talking about it in person. What are your thoughts on this? couple of things. First of all, let your people know, meaning your therapist, or psychiatrist, about your concerns about pills. Now, there are medications like, um, I don't know if it's Prozac or Zoloft, but I know also even like Abilify and was it uh, Latuda. There's quite a few medications that like you technically really cannot overdose on them. And a lot of times we'll put patients who have, you know, a suicidal tendency on those medications. Now, yes, that could mean that, oh, they might not be as effective because we don't have, you know, full range to use whatever kind of medications we might want to use. But hopefully, fingers crossed, we can find one that works for you and that also doesn't have a risk of that. Or what I've done with a lot of uh, my patients and a lot of psychiatrists have done is that they 
have them pick up at every appointment their week of pills, or we only refill, you know, every so often. And so there are ways that we can kind of limit the amount of medication that we can have on hand. A therapist would be checking in on that all the time. I check in with all of my patients about it because if they're hoarding medication, I want to find out. And, you know, we're trying to get better. We're trying to help you. And we're going to ask questions and we're going to be a little bit nosy so that we can do that. So anyways, there are some things that we can do if we don't really trust ourselves around medications, because there are plenty of medications that do not have like that concern of overdose. And I would push back on the hospitalizing yourself because no one has to know why you're in the hospital. And I know you don't want them to think you're unstable. Why don't we just tell them that we had like a stomach bug and you were dehydrated? I know not everybody, some people are like, Katie, I can't believe you would condone lying. But sometimes it's just not anyone's business. And it's okay to tell some white lies sometimes to protect our privacy. If we become super close to these people and we feel okay with them knowing something, we can come clean and say, you know, when I was in the hospital, it was actually because I was really going through a tough time. I just didn't want you to think I was crazy or, you know, unstable. So that's why I told you, I hope you understand. Any normal person who's worth being a friend to or a friend with, I guess, is going to say, of course, I understand. That's okay. I'm just glad you got the help that you needed, right? Why would I judge that? They wouldn't. So those are my thoughts about that. Okay, let's move on to question number seven. This question says, hey, Katie, could it be beneficial to go to a therapist who reminds you of people who have hurt you in the past? It's a good question. I find myself having a hard time trusting my therapist because she reminds me of everyone who has hurt me before. Could this work in my favor to have to learn how to trust her in this safe environment? Or is it more important to see someone who doesn't bring out these insecurities? Thank you. That's a great question. I think if a therapist reminds you of the person who harmed you, it's not going to be helpful. Let's not do that. That's not necessary. We don't need to learn to trust someone who reminds us of our abuser. There's no reason for that. I know people might disagree, but I'm here to tell you, find someone who doesn't remind you of them at all, because that's only going to make it harder. And it's like we're triggered every time we go into session. And that's not good. We want to be going into session. Obviously, it can be hard going to session. We can be stressed out being like, oh, I have to talk about all this stuff again. Oh, I'm not ready, right? We can already have that feeling or just even that ramp up like within our nervous system, knowing that we're going to therapy. We could already be having that. Let's not compound that with the fact that our therapist reminds us of the person who harmed us. Mm -mm. It's not worth it. There's no benefit. I think it's actually only a hindrance. Now, obviously in the in the future, in the future, I'd have to, I just want to say it that way because it's funny. Or maybe it's not, but I thought it was. Um, if we wanted to test ourselves, we could put ourselves around someone who reminded us of the trauma as part of like exposure therapy. But I don't, again, it'd be more like situations, smells, like things that are triggers, not like a person, because that's not necessarily a requirement, but maybe someone's voice, it sounds kind of like them. Maybe they look like them. We could potentially at that point try to do that so that then we could calm ourselves down, but we're not going to be able to build up our, our resources, meaning those things that will help us soothe and feel okay or calm down. We're not gonna be able to build those up ahead of time because our therapist is that person. So it's really, it's not beneficial. I would, I would not see that person. And there was a comment on this said, or the opposite. Is it necessary or beneficial to see someone who is different from you and the majority of people that you know? For example, I'm currently seeing someone who is from a different culture. I find that while it was initially challenging to try and explain cultural factors, this arrangement could prevent transference. Hmm. At least until now, I've not seen her as a mother figure, something that I've done with previous therapists. 
I think we have to find out what's best for us. So if this is that distance or that disconnect that you're experiencing allows you to like not want to attach so quickly, that could be beneficial and important to bring up in therapy that you're not having that same response and to dig into why that is. But I don't think that it's necessary or beneficial to see someone who's different from you. In a lot of cases, it's actually the opposite, like seeing someone who is similar to us in ways that are important. And I say it that way because that's how I mean it. Meaning like I like to see a woman therapist. It's nothing against guys. I don't have a problem with dudes. I just don't want to explain certain parts of being a woman to a dude. I will feel not as understood and it's no fault of his. It's just my preference. Okay. I also want someone who's older. Okay. Um, if I came from a certain type of culture, let's say I was raised, you know, very strictly Jewish, I might want to find a Jewish therapist, or let's say I've struggled with religious trauma, then I don't want to see a therapist who is a religious based therapist, right? We finding a therapist, like I said, in my first book, are you okay? It's not a time to be PC. Finding the therapist who's a right fit is actually just finding something that works for you. If there's a reason that you feel this, this therapist is a good fit, whether it's because of their training or the connection you have or both, or it's like, you know, they're super close, which makes it not stressful. And I like the way that their office feels and I feel safe enough to start talking about things like this is not the time for you to, to be completely politically correct. This is a time for you to find someone who makes sense for you and who feels right. And however, you know, however that works out is good. And I have a video on my YouTube channel also about like how to know if you're seeing a good therapist. I think that's what it's called. You can check that out too, for more information. Okay. Question number eight says, hi, Katie and community. I've been wondering how people quote unquote view their memories. I often recall memories from a third person perspective. Hello, dissociation. I.e. I see myself doing something rather than from my own perspective or my own eyes. Is this the norm or is it part of dissociation? P.S. Thank you to those who replied to this question last week. It helps so much to know that I'm not alone. You're definitely not alone. Very, very common. That third person perspective is that depersonalization, meaning that removal from self. Remember I said it can feel like you're watching yourself do things like a third person. Or if it can be derealization, removal from environment, we feel like we're watching a movie, Like, but we're still watching ourselves, right? We're still a third person. Just depends on the level of kind of distance that we put um, within ourselves or between ourselves as the viewer and as the person in the memory, if that makes sense. And also de, uh, derealization when we're removed from environment can feel, I don't know, like, like everything around us isn't real, you know? Um, and so anyways, yes, that's very, very common. Um, those are most likely trauma memories or memories that are in some way connected to a trauma memory could be the time of our life uh, when the trauma was happening, even though that specific memory maybe isn't upsetting, or it could be, you know, um, just, uh, it could be a specific to a trauma memory where it's actually like something is taking place that's harmful. And that's why the dissociation is just protective. And this is not the norm. Um, regular people without trauma or without dissociation, because dissociation doesn't only occur in trauma. It occurs often with trauma, but for some people it can just be an over a sense of overwhelm, right? And we can be overwhelmed for a lot of reasons and we can dissociate poof and then 
you know, it can be like a short-lived thing, but we could have that memory and third-person perspective. Um, and then there was a comment on this says, also, is it possible to have a trauma memory that actually doesn't feel like it really happened, but instead as if it was, oh, and we already talked about this. This was a comment about the recollection of a fantasy scenario. I answered that earlier and I thought I'd had it in another question. I just wanted to make sure that I really got through, you know, answered that person's question thoroughly. And um, it is possible to have a trauma memory that is like a fantasy scenario you made up as a kid. And I discussed that earlier. Okay, let's move on to question number nine. It says, hi, Katie, what if you're half ready for recovery? What can you do? I want to get better, but I don't want to put in the effort it takes to use the skills. Sometimes I forget they exist. And other times I just don't do it. Honestly, having a therapist who gets it and is supportive can help push us through. Now, it could also be so okay let's let's dig into that first and then i have a secondary thought as well so most people are only half ready for recovery we don't like how we feel our life is turning into shit and we want things to get better but we don't really have that want to put in the effort to use the skills and get better because and moving into my second thought we're drowning in the symptoms meaning that medication or other ancillary re- uh, support things like group therapy, things like extra therapy sessions, or maybe going into a day program or any number of those things. We might need that in order to allow us to have the energy to put in the effort to use our skills and to feel better. Does that make sense? I feel like everybody's only half ready, but if we can't muster up the strength and the courage to try to do it on our own, just to give it a good try, we every week we feel like we're not making progress and we can't use the skills, then we might need more support. We might need medication. Those are those are all things that are okay, right? We have to have people meet us where we're at. I've talked about this off and on, but there are times in my life when I was going to therapy two times a week or three times a week here and there when my dad died and I, I uh, Sean and I were getting married and I was like studying to take my exams and planning a wedding. There were times that were just super stressful for me. I was in therapy a lot and that's okay. We all need it from time to time and getting some extra support can allow us the, the oomph to put in that effort and potentially medication could assist as well. Okay. And then the, the thing about sometimes I forget they exist and other times I just don't do it in reference to the skills, let your therapist know because the forgetting they exist is probably, we might not be noticing what's going on, like the trigger or why we'd need to use the skills early enough. So we might need to track back and have a plan with our therapist where we put those skills into practice earlier on. And the times that we don't do it, I would let your therapist know about that. And I, you know, if you were my patient, I would have a lot of questions about that. Like, um, wondering, you know, what, what the process was like in your head, like what, what are the thoughts and feelings that you had about using the skills and like, what was it in the end that made you like not want to do it and not feel motivated is, do you not feel motivated all the time? I'd have a lot of questions, a lot of follow-ups so we can figure out what's getting in the way there. And then how can we tackle that to give you again, the best support and the best help that you can get so that we can move things forward. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, hi, Katie. I don't know if this is common, but your clients ever tell you that they don't want to give up their eating disorder as a puffer fish mechanism. For those of you who don't know, that's why I sell merch with a puffer fish on it. Puffer fishing is when we like get defensive. It's a coping mechanism. You know, we're like, ha, stick our spines out because we're really soft and squishy and too vulnerable. It's protective. So we puffer fish and we can use our eating disorder as a way to puffer fish, right? Like I find myself saying these things when I really don't mean it. It is just easier to say, I don't want recovery over the fact that I'm scared that I just quite frankly can't do it. I think I say it in order to cover up my real fears. Furthermore, if a client says this to you, 
do you stop seeing them? Like if they told you they were really struggling, but don't want recovery right now, let's say they just want to not get worse. Would you still see them? I hope this makes sense. Yes, this makes sense. And I was so glad that I randomly selected this. I saw the word pufferfish when I was scrolling. I was like, oh, let's take that one. So this is super, super common. I feel like most of my eating disorder patients don't want to really give it up. They just don't like how they feel and they don't want to get worse because they feel like shit already. And of course, I still see them. The only reason that I wouldn't continue to see a patient is if they were deteriorating to the point where they needed a higher level of care, meaning inpatient hospitalization, things like that, because I am just an outpatient therapist. I'm not a doctor, dietitian. I don't have that full support staff to make sure that you're eating enough when I'm not around, right? And so if you're needing that level of support, I would refer you to that level of support. Would I see you when you came out of treatment? 100%. I would be there. So I would still continue to see people if they didn't really want to get better. Most of my patients who have struggled with eating disorders when they first come into treatment don't want to get better. Or they 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 think that they're going to prove to me that it's not as bad and that it doesn't warrant help and that they're maybe they're just making a bigger deal. You know, it's like we invalidate, minimize, minimize until we feel like it's okay, you know, because our eating disorder is always going to tell us that we're not sick enough for care. doesn't matter what side of the spectrum we're on. If we binge eat, if we purge, if we are restrictive, if we're doing all those things, it doesn't matter. It will always tell us we're not sick enough because eating disorders always lie. They don't know how to tell any truth. They actually don't ever tell you the truth. So I don't stop seeing them. I keep seeing them. I dig into where this is coming from and what's going on and what they're really scared about. Cause it's usually hiding something, right? Like their eating disorder is a coping skill for something bigger going on and it's protective. So if we're going to therapy and we're like, I'm going to start working on stuff and start, I'm going to get rid of this because it's really starting to make my life a living hell. It could be covering up a trauma from our past. It could be covering, it could be giving us a sense of control over an otherwise chaotic life that we're living. It could be doing a lot of things for us. And the thought of giving it up is going to stir all that up for us and make us say, hell no, I don't want to get rid of it. I like it here because it gives us those things, right? Whatever it is. And so we'll try to finagle a way to like not get worse, but not get better. If that it's so common, I would say, like 99% of my eating disorder patients feel that way. So you're not alone and they will still keep seeing you and you can get better. So I have to figure out where this is coming from, where this pushback is coming from. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope that the answers are helpful. Thank you to everyone who submitted their questions. They're Trust me when I say that each and every question usually represents a ton more people. So thank you for being brave, putting your question out there and being a voice for our community because I I hear all the time in the comments how helpful a lot of those have been. And so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all of your five-star reviews and for sharing this with friends and family. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.